Lord, this morning as we begin our time in the Word, a few things we want to lift up beforehand. I want to pray for a local um, official. I want to pray for Dan Perkins, uh, one of our city council members. I want to pray first for Dan's worship. I think, I believe Dan is a, a worshiper, that he knows you. And uh, Lord, I want to pray that his worship is um, fervent and daily and genuine and real. I pray that his journey with you is uh, through enjoying who your son is and what he's done. Lord, I pray that as a result of that worship, that first, first of all, that it will invade his home and invade relationships, um, invade his workplace, and as we're lifting up this morning, invade even decisions that he makes that impact this community. Lord, we pray for an opportunity for the gospel to be furthered community because of the decisions that are made. And we pray for uh, Dan, uh, as well as the rest of our council members. We're thankful for their service, and uh, we lift them up today. Lord, I also want to pray for uh, another church and for another pastor. I want to pray for Brad Strand and Harvest Bible Church. Lord, I want to pray first for Brad's worship. I pray that, he, that you'll guard his heart from, from just doing a J-O-B. And that this thing that he's about each week in preparing messages and in counseling and in shepherding and pastoring, that it's fueled by worship. And that when he spends time with you in the Word and in study, that the Holy Spirit speaks to him and changes him and directs him so that it, it impacts his home and his ministry. And that ultimately that you're glorified through that. Or to pray for Harvest Bible Church, we pray for uh, real fervent daily, weekly worship. Lord, we pray that you will guard them as you would guard us from just getting our church on and just getting a check in the block, but that we could treat every gathering, every time that we sit down and take in your word, every time that we stand and sing about who you are, that it's genuine and that it's fresh and new, that we sing newly, that we hear newly, that we preach newly. I pray the same thing for Brad and for Harvest Bible Church. I pray that you will Grow this church for your own glory. Or whatever way that we can come alongside this church, whether it's official or unofficial, just to, in working next to a church member in a cubicle, we just pray that you'll be glorified as we cheer for them and for your glory there. And we pray that they would do the same for us and for every other Christian church in this community. Lord, before we engage our message this morning, I want to pray too for those who are dealing with loss this week. We are hurting with family members, uh, church family members who, um, who are grieving and, and uh, in pain right now. We pray that you will minister to them, that they will find uh, some sort of comfort in knowing that you are a good God, that you aren't snoozing, you're never caught off guard, that you're always at work, and that you can work and indeed do work all things for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Thankful that you are always at the helm. Lord, we turn this time over to you. Pray that you'll be glorified in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews. This Sunday is the last message in really what is a section that involves chapter 1 and chapter 2 all the way up to verse 4. Kind of big picture, kind of gets you oriented as you're turning there. 
Chapter 1 is made up of a bunch of what I would call exposition. And then chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 4, is what we would call exhortation. Exposition is, is showing all these great things about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then in chapter 2, exhortation is, here's what God's people are to do with it. Here's how it should impact God's people. So really, I think it would be appropriate for us to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and just read this together in a section. We're going to be looking today um, really at verses 3 and 4, the second part of 3 and 4 in chapter 2. But it seems just right for us to engage this together. I'll tell you too, as you're preparing for this morning's message, kind of in your mind and heart, it's lighter fare this morning, which some of you might be game for. I'm game for, I have to confess. We've had some pretty heavy meals the last few weeks. And these first few verses of chapter 2 have really been weighty. If you haven't been here, if you're a visitor or if you've been out, you've got some work to do and you need to go back and hear them. This morning, though, we're going to enjoy some lighter fare, which would be appropriate, too, after Thanksgiving. That um, uh, Time-wise, too, I want you to let you know if you're wrestling with a little one, a pre-K or, or kindergartner this morning, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. It won't be um, a massive message this morning. It won't be light fare by any means, but it won't be as heavy as we've been engaging. But we'll be in chapter 1 just for the sake of context. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every single transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And here's where we pick up today. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And God also bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These last few weeks, we've really kind of been in unpacking and engaging an argument in chapter 2. The first part of the argument we considered a few weeks ago where we sort of brought into focus the lesser of a lesser and greater comparison. If God proved reliable in the lesser, in the message declared by angels, i.e. the law, how in the world are we going to escape if we neglect an even greater salvation? That's where we went last week. The greater salvation, the sanctions, the very real sanctions in our new covenant. This isn't some sort of freestyle covenant, but it is one where in fact there is obligation as there is still authority. And then today we're going to consider the second part of the argument that's really three reasons to pay much closer attention. As if we don't have enough already, this Hebrews preacher and a Hebrews writer takes us to even three more reasons to pay much closer attention. We're going to take brief looks at each of them and then we're going to apply what we've considered in each of the three. The three are, and they're right there from the text, it was declared at first by the Lord, that's the first. It was attested to us by those who heard, that's the second. And the third is, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit that distributed according to his will. So let's take a look at the first one. It was declared at first by the Lord. Turn to Luke chapter 4. We don't have a lot of satellites today, but we have a couple that I want to take you to. And Luke chapter 4 is an important one. Three more reasons to pay close attention. Here's the first. Because this message, this great salvation, was declared at first by the Lord. Now this passage that I've grabbed in Luke chapter 4 is really just a sample of what was declared by the Lord. It's sort of a condensed picture of the, it's not irony, but maybe let's just say the beauty of the fact that he, he came as a messenger bearing a message, but that he also was the message. That not only did he come with good news, but he was the good news. And this Luke chapter 4 passage sort of captures it. So let's go there. We're going to look at the first part of it. We'll look at the second part of it in application. But let's see if we can climb into it. This is early in Christ's earthly ministry. I believe it's after he's been baptized. It's definitely after he's been tempted in the wilderness. And here in chapter 4, verse 16, he comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This would be a common practice in synagogue, where they open the scrolls and they read from the scrolls, and someone might share a, a, a short sermon And that's what's about to unfold right here. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to Jesus. So just imagine for a moment that this is a local synagogue. 
which it, it, the, the, your imagination is going to break down because I'm about to become Jesus as I continue reading, which I know that's going to be hard, but we'll do our best with that. Just imagine we're in a local synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, which would be, would be their Saturday, and it's a time for reading, as was a custom. They gather. They hand Jesus a scroll. He opens up the scroll and reads in Hebrew from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. He stands, as does everybody else when he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay, he finds this passage. He could have read from anywhere in Isaiah, but this is where he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. I wonder if he didn't cross his legs. It's apparently pretty impacting for people because they're just staring at him at this point. I don't know whether it was especially brief I mean, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him at this point. So maybe it's the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit were on the people where they couldn't take their eyes off of him. He's seated, he's read these words, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, it says. And he began to say to them, just taking these words, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't even imagine he looked at him. I'm looking at you just because I'm still preaching a sermon, but I wonder if he didn't just sit there and just say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It apparently impacted him pretty significantly and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. We're going to come back to this in application from that point on. But as I take in that moment and imagine what that would have been like in the local synagogue as Jesus shows up and he reads the words from Isaiah written likely about 500 years or so before he actually showed up in synagogue that Sabbath day to read those words. He reads them as a messenger but he reads them also as the message and he sits down and he says today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. I'm bringing good news to you to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm bringing news that proclaims liberty to the captives, that proclaims the recovering of sight to the blind, that proclaims liberty to those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. He's bringing those things as a proclaiming them, but he's also bringing those things saying, those things arrive today in the person and work of me. What a profound moment. Sort of a condensed picture of the whole gospels, all four gospels, the reality of Christ's earthly uh, work. This great salvation that the Hebrews writer has been writing about and speaking of was declared by the Lord about the Lord. 
He came not only as message, but he came, or not only as messenger, but he came as the message itself. We just spent eight years enjoying one perspective or one witness on this earthly ministry in the book of John. This great salvation was declared by the Lord as he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Secondly, it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, go back to Hebrews. We'll come back to Luke chapter 4 later. Go back to Hebrews. I want to show you something specific to Hebrews that I think is, or well, show, show you something, I was about to say unique, but that's, it's not unique either. But something that's interesting about Hebrews that you're going to see is really characteristic of this whole journey that we're on. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm just going to grab a few words here and there. Chapter 1, verse 1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Verse 6. And again, when he brings the first, firstborn in the world, he says. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says. Of the son, he says. In verse 8, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? And then in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. There's an emphasis in the book of Hebrews that's not, as I was mistakenly about to say, unique to Hebrews, on the audible message. On the spoken and heard message. The Hebrews writer is taking the Hebrews church, this little Jewish, Hellenistic Jewish church, likely in Rome, back to what they had heard. And he says the second good reason that we're going to make an argument for today to pay much closer attention to what you've heard is because it was attested to us by those who heard. He's speaking of men and women that apparently had been in Jerusalem around the time likely of Christ's work or His cross or His resurrection. He's speaking of people who I would say were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Christ. But he doesn't call them eyewitnesses. He calls them earwitnesses. He's speaking of people that were there when Christ walked the earth and had moved to Rome. Maybe they were in Jerusalem on holiday or there for the Passover or Pentecost. And they saw Christ's work firsthand But this author is thinking, not seen. They're not eyewitnesses. They're earwitnesses. He's referring to their moms and dads who are apparently dead and gone by now. This is the second generation of believers in this church. And he's saying the second good reason for listening is because it was attested to us by those who heard Christ firsthand. We have these scriptures just like they do. Sometimes there's a potential to look at these Hebrews readers and say, man, they sure were lucky. They were so um, close to Christ's earthly work. Their moms and dads saw and heard Christ's message. And to look at them and think, man, we got gypped 2,000 years later. And as I'm looking at what they have right here, I'm thinking and realizing we have the same thing they have. It was attested to them by those who heard We have the same thing. Our whole New Testaments are sort of post-Christ work. Ear witnesses sharing with us their perspective. And third, beginning in verse 4. 
God also bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, there was a serious light show at this message declared by angels. You remember I've taken you in these previous weeks to that Sinai. There's a serious light show in Exodus 19 and 20 when the law was given. Sinai is quaking, there's fire, there's smoke. But what came with this salvation is an even greater light show. Greater wonders, greater miracles, greater gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It began with a new star. You could even say that it didn't begin there. But at least one of the early markers is a new star over Bethlehem, a sky full of angels. God speaking from heaven at His baptism. God speaking from heaven at His transfiguration. This Jesus walked on water. He changed water to wine. He healed a man that was lame for 38 years. He gave sight to a blind man. He calmed storms. He healed many. He preached to hillsides full of creatures that he gave breath and life to. He fed them with multiplied loaves and fishes. He called a man by name from death to life. And on his cross... The sky darkened in the middle of the day and there were earthquakes and tombs bust open with saints, previously dead people. I wonder if John the Baptist was one of them. Come alive and walk around all over Jerusalem. That's a light show. And then on a dewy Sunday morning, the crucified left the tomb vacant. The ultimate, supreme miracle. And 40 days later, He ascends into the sky and he goes to sit at the Father's right hand. And then 10 days later, there's a massive light show at what we know as Pentecost. Flames like tongues of fire resting on each of the apostles as they're preaching in many languages, including languages they don't even know. God bore witnesses, witnessed by signs and wonders and various miracles. And that day, at least 3,000 people were called from death to life. And then the book of Acts is full of one miracle after another, one marvel after another. People's shadows falling on sick people and healing them that are associated with this great, greater, really, gospel. God indeed bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, Let me deal with probably what's the most complicated of the things that God bore witness to. They're all sort of complicated here 2,000 years later because I I don't know about you, but I've wondered where have these things gone. I've wondered where the signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit He seems to be speaking of Sort of the sign gifts, you may have heard that term before, are the charismata, sort of the shock and awe sort of gifts where something crazy's happening. I'm reading this and I'm wondering to myself, man, where are those things today? Are we somehow less faithful today than we were then? I read in the book of 1 Corinthians, which Corinthians, I'm thinking, man, you guys are not the picture of virtue. Yet apparently, very um, closely associated time-wise with the early church or the birth of the church, 
there's the presence of these sign gifts and really the spectacular sort of gifts that seem to be what God has borne witness to. Listen to this passage in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Seems pretty reasonable so far, man, liking that. To each is given the manifestation of the Holy of the Spirit for the common good. Makes a lot of sense. I'm liking that. I'm all there. For to one is given the Spirit of the utterance of wisdom. Hmm. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. I've been around people in this current contemporary church that have had just a unique measure of wisdom where they speak, and it's like if you're, you're smart, you're like E.F. Hutton, you're listening. They even may have some sort of insight or some sort of knowledge that's unique. To another, faith by the same Spirit. I bet you've been around those people that just have a deep, deep, abiding, fervent, daily faith. To another, here's where things get a little bit complicated for me. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. I've got to confess to you or testify. I don't know whether it's confession or testifying. I I hadn't figured that out. I really don't know what to do with some of these gifts because I can't figure out why don't we see them today. Or do we? And we're just not paying attention. Do some churches have it right and we somehow have it wrong? Are we missing out on what some might say is the full gospel? Is there something wrong with us? Are we so far removed that even the the Corinthian church somehow had more faith and more evidence of God's working than we have? I've wrestled with these sort of questions. And I really, with everything in me, want to believe when someone says that they love Jesus and they have a word from God in another tongue. I do want to believe that. I believe that someone can genuinely, legitimately love Jesus and profess that they have a message from God in another tongue. What I've found in my study over the years of this, and this is just where I am today, and I can't say that it's not where I'll be 10 years from now. I may be in a different place on this. I believe that these gifts were legitimate. I'm reading the text, and I trust that they were there, even for a church like Corinth. But then here in the Hebrews letter, I see the writer using, having a choice, an opportunity to say anything he wants to say here, and everything he uses is past tense. It was declared at first by the Lord. Past tense. It was attested to us by those ear witnesses. Past tense. And God also bore witness. Past tense. By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed, past tense, according to His will. 
I look at those past tense words and at least helps me understand maybe, and I'm saying maybe, because I want to be graceful in this, maybe why we're not seeing healings and tongues and obvious miracles today. I'm game for them. I promise you I'm game for them. I would love for Channing Edwards to be healed. So if any of you are holding out on us, please. I've got two kids I would love that could see 2020. That would bless me. Sam Millard, I bet, would love to never have to have another blood test. I love the thought of that, and I don't ever want to discount that that's possible. I think maybe where the gospel is taking to brand new places, to where the gospel is going on the far edges, the far corners of the field, that there may be some of these sign gifts associated in those new contexts. Here, I don't understand why we don't see it. The only thing I do, I see a past tense and I go, well, maybe that's it. Maybe he bore witness at a unique time. One thing I do see that's associated, oftentimes, at least in our context, with people saying, I have a a special word from the Lord, I have some tongues, or I have a healing that I want to give you, is I often see the Holy Spirit made much of. And I don't ever see that biblically. In fact, every place where I see the Holy Spirit showing up, he's pointing to Jesus. He makes much of Jesus. So when you see a context where the Holy Spirit is made much of, then you have to wonder, at least diagnostically, hey, what's going on there? And I want to encourage you to wonder that humbly with me. Because we could all be wrong. I don't think so, but we could be. So we need to have a hermeneutic of humility as we consider this. But I see bore witness. I see distributed as past tense. And at least helps me wonder why maybe nobody's busted up and healed Channing Edwards yet I have to ask the question though do we need signs and wonders now do we do we have to have someone speak in another tongue or even possibly heal Channing Edwards to know that ours is a great salvation really I mean ask the question do we if we do then maybe there's something wrong It seems like there's miracle enough as there's lives changed. There's marriages transformed. There's people that have hope in dark situations. To me, that's miracle enough. And I have to ask the question, do we have to have these special sign gifts in order to believe? It takes me to John chapter 20. I'm there already, so I'll read it to you. Jesus is speaking to Thomas, and he says, You believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who've not seen and have yet believed. I think there's a blessedness in that, in not having to have that. Now, as far as application goes for each of these three things, our Lord declaring uh, those who went before us, attesting to it, and God bearing witness, some application. First, with what the Lord declared, I encourage you to enjoy what was declared by the Lord. That's application. It's not real deep. It's not real complicated. It doesn't give you a plan for the week. But I would say that it's going to be borne out in some things that are pretty simple, like reading your Gospels. I don't know that we can ever saturate ourselves too much in the firsthand accounts of Christ's work. I brought this book out of my study that I use sometimes. It's the Synopsis of the Four Gospels. And really what it's done is it's sort of put the four Gospels in parallel chronologically to where they make sense. 
Because if you're reading the Gospels, there are times where they seem to be out of order and times where they may even seem to be in conflict with each other. The way I've learned to understand these four witnesses of Christ's ministry, it would be like having four witnesses on each of four corners at an intersection and a wreck happening right in the middle of the intersection. All four people are going to have four different vantage points. And those witnesses may even give accounts that seem to not agree at times or to seem to to not be quite identical. Well, of course they're not. They have different vantage points. And that's the way to think about your four Gospels. And I encourage you to enjoy Christ, especially in the four Gospels. A synopsis of the four Gospels could help. But certainly just saturating yourselves in these Gospels. Learn to enjoy Him for His sake. Purpose in your heart not to read it for what you're going to get out of it. Just ask the Lord, Lord, just for the next few minutes... Keep me from being a consumer. This just here to get my fix. Keep me from just thinking that I have to jump the hurdles to be square with you and in your good standing. And that means my daily quiet time. Take that away from me to where I just want to enjoy being with you through your story. That I can go to these gospels and enjoy Christ for his sake because he's enjoyable. Let me take you back to that passage. Let's go back to where we were. I encourage you to, this is in, where was that, Luke chapter 4? Turn there. Learn to read the Gospels to enjoy the Jesus of the Gospels. And what you'll find is you'll learn so much about our Gospel that will shed light on the world's version of it. Go back to that synagogue setting. On that Sabbath, as was the custom, Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah. Where is it? Luke chapter 4. Okay. Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, let let me escort you into a good and useful and fruitful study. Look for where Jesus did that in the rest of the the Bible. Go to places where the poor are ministered to. I would say go to Ephesians chapter 1. That would be a good place to start. Where the riches of the gospel are lavished. The riches of grace are lavished on his people. I love that word, lavish. It's a good word. You want to learn how to saturate yourself in what Christ has done and what he said and how beautiful it is? Then set out on studies like that. Figure out how he's proclaimed liberty to captives and liberty to the oppressed. Go to John chapter 9 and enjoy his healing a blind man and consider recovering of sight to the blind. Saturate yourself in the story. Now let's watch how this unfolds. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes and all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now if that's all that you read, you might have the temptation. If that's all that I preached, you might be tempted to think that Jesus brings sort of a kumbaya to the synagogue that day. They held hands and sang kumbaya and left, picking flowers and stuff. 
Let's see what happens. Somebody says, hey, uh, wait a minute. Is not this just Joseph's son? Joseph the carpenter's son? And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He's basically saying, doubtless you're thinking, well, if you're something special and anything more than just Joseph's son, then show off a little bit. We heard what you did at Capernaum. Give us some miracles. And he said, you know what? Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the, old land, the, over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to those, Israel, to, to those widows. He went to a non-Israelite widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, you remember him, the, the general of the army, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Jesus, this is your first sermon, and it's gone so well initially, and now it's gone south. Why did you have to make them so mad, Jesus? I thought you came to bring worldwide kumbaya. I thought you came to bring peace. And yet it says right here, now continuing, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. <laughs> That's a sermon gone bad, I would say. But passing through their midst, he went away. It wasn't his time for his death yet. When you saturate yourself in these stories, you learn the nature of the story and you learn the nature of people and how they receive it. You learn the nature of truth. When you're saturated in these stories and you share the joy that you have within, in and by and through Jesus with a work made at L3 and it makes them mad where they want to choke you and you can't understand and you think, I must have done something wrong. I must have, it must have been broken the way I presented it. But then you saturate yourself in these and go, well, no, duh. That shouldn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise me when the truth hits people that way. In Luke chapter 12, just a few chapters later, Jesus says, do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When you saturate yourself in these gospels, you learn the nature not only of the messenger, but the nature of the message itself. And it helps you decipher and interpret so much of what you're going through from day to day. The first thing I encourage you to do is enjoy him for his sake because he's enjoyable. Watch how he moves. Watch what he says. Watch who he interacts with. 
I bet that's the same thing in you, the same thing in me, that you just want to interact with people that are clean and tidy and easy. Watch who Jesus interacts with. He deals with the difficult and the unlikely. That's who he's teaching. That's who he's spending himself on, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When you saturate yourself in his story, you realize he's this kind of Lord that climbs up or down onto a donkey's colt. The kind of Lord that washes feet. And it will impact your view on life. It will impact your view on worship. You'll be more able to climb down and to wash as you saturate yourself in his story. It's reason enough to pay close attention to what he said, given that he said it, and given how he lived, how he loved, who he loved, how he moved, it validates his message. Secondly, as it was attested to you, attest to it. Enjoy Christ in the Gospels. And as it was attested to you, attest to it because that's what God's people do. I've asked this question before and I've wondered how many of you this has really impacted. Do you ever have the thought of going to church? Now, you know I don't like that terminology, but I'm just going to use it because it's common. If you ever have the thought of going to church just to get something... Have you ever, this question that I've ever posed to you, has this ever impacted where you, where you realize, wait a second, you're going to be equipped for something. And if the message terminates on you, you will likely have that thought, I'm going there to get something. What you need to realize is the character and nature of this message and this journey that we're on is that it is not terminal. It is a perpetual message. Someone attested to this to you. And you need to attest to it. Fathers, especially single moms, shepherds of families, you should have the thought, I am gathering weekly to be equipped to attest. Who else is going to attest to it? What we tend to do is farm that out to various people. Hopefully we can find a few experts not realizing that it's the nature of the message and the nature of the journey is that everyone is attesting to it. As we've heard it, we attest to it. Ask yourself the question if the message typically terminates on you. Do you have a view of being equipped each week to engage those who are hurting? Those who are needy are those who are lost. The third thing, in regards to God bearing witness, two parts to this one. First, don't run to the sensational. There's an encouragement not to run to the sensational. It's totally understandable how the sensational can be so attractive. I am very thankful that he bore witness to Christ's message with works and with miracles and with signs that were so crazy sensational. But I don't want to become more in love with the sensations of his presence than the God of those sensations. 
It seems that God by nature takes those things away because we're prone to fall in love with creatures and feelings more than the God of those feelings. And there's an encouragement not to fall in love with the sensations. In studying the story, this redemptive story, there were long periods in the story of redemption that were completely void of anything spectacular. I'm thinking about 400 years in slavery in Egypt. There's no recorded sign or wonder or miracle during that period. Now, we don't know that there weren't, but there's nobody attests to one. Nobody mentions one. There's no, none recorded. It seems for 400 years, all they're doing is making bricks. Making bricks and apparently just talking about what God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Faithfulness in this period didn't appear to be associated with anything sensational or spectacular. And then God showed up to draw his people out and then the light show is on, right? The plagues. Yet people apparently trusted and sought God, signs or not. Faithfulness by nature is not sensational and it's not dramatic. Faithfulness is born out in what I mentioned last week, warp and woof. It's born out in the soil of, here's the bad news, Monday. <laughs> it's born out in the soil of, here's the bad news, in case you're looking for something spectacular, December 2012. Faithfulness is born out in the ordinary of Greenville, L3, Oak Creek Estates, Caddo Mills, Rubbermaid, downtown. Not spectacular. That's where faithfulness is born out. So don't run to the sensational. And secondly, walk in your gifting. Don't run to the sensational. Walk in your gifting. It seems here in Hebrews that he's speaking of the sensational sort of sign gifts, but it's not clear. There's a very clear reality that God continues to bear witness to the reality and work and message of his son by the demonstration of the gifts presently in the church. And those gifts may not be sensational to be a blessing and to bear witness to the reality of his message they might be the gifts of preaching, teaching, helps. They might be the gifts of hospitality, the gifts of encouragement, and the gifts of discernment. When those gifts and others are practiced in the local body, God bears witness to the message as we walk in our gifting. Let me just encourage you in this. If you don't know what your gifting is, then just start walking. Step out in places that may be frightening, that you may feel ill-equipped, and when you put your hand to something and you see an outcome that's greater than you, you found your gifting. I didn't, as a boy, think I was going to be a preacher. I stuttered so bad as a boy I couldn't speak. I went through four or five years of speech therapy. You think a boy at that time? I, I remember picking up the phone to, to dial the local tire shop or something. It was one of my exercises to ask them what their hours are. Hello, Bill's Tires. And I, I couldn't even ask him. I couldn't even start a sentence. You think I'm thinking about being a preacher? <laughs> Man, God chooses the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. Step out in something that even if it's scary, 
that when you see an outcome that's greater than you, you found your gifting. And when you walk in that, you're going to bear witness to this story. You're going to bear witness to the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're going to bear witness to the reality of the message. I encourage you to do that. All right. We're going to have a Lord's Supper here in a minute. Steve's going to come up, and I'm going to make one brief comment before. Steve, you're doing Lord's Supper, right? I'm going to make one brief comment before the Lord's Supper. Last week, I prepared you for the Lord's Supper with an encouragement to reconcile with anyone and everyone, no matter what they've done, and to make a beeline for this table. I've had some really good conversation with, with Christy that's helped me in these, this last week. We have some close friends that are really going through a just crazy, crazy difficult time. They're not part of our church. They're friends from years ago. Um, he's in jail. She's holding down the fort, raising the kids. And he's supposed to be getting out in January. And we were talking about this the nature of forgiveness. And it seems that forgiveness, the time involved with forgiveness, is in some way related to the gravity of the air and the gravity of the sin. If somebody hurts your feelings in the office or in church, gatherings, hopefully you guys can reconcile and make a beeline before the next Sunday. If your wife cheats on you, that might be difficult to do before next Sunday. If you've gone through years of abuse, it might be difficult to reconcile and come back and make a beeline to this table. Okay, I got it all tidied up. What I realized as Christy and I were talking about this is that because time is involved doesn't mean that it's not God-honoring. You can head out that in that direction Pursuing forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation, even in some really difficult and ugly things that may have happened to you or difficult or ugly things that you may have done. And in time, God can bring reconciliation and really beauty back to that relationship or maybe beauty back to the relationship for the first time. But head out in that direction. Let the gospel be fuel for that and then come race to the table as you come each week and you're moving in that direction. This is nourishment for that journey in the direction of reconciliation. I realized as Christy and I were talking that there may be people in here last week that heard that and say, man, I know you said no matter what's been done to me, but I wish you had some idea how long this went on. That guy has no clue what actually took place. The abuse the verbal abuse, the physical abuse, the ugly things that people can do to each other. And the expectation that, okay, it's all good. Let's go raise the table by next Sunday is a laugh. What I want to encourage you to do is pursue reconciliation and come and take this as nourishment on the journey as you move in that direction. It could be a previous marriage. It could be a current marriage. It could be a previous relationship. It could be a previous friendship. It could be someone that you've worked with. Someone that you've been in worship with, ironically, heartbreakingly. It could be a parent or a child or a sibling. Pursue real forgiveness and come and take this as you pursue it. In hopes that maybe there could be a day where you take it together. This is a resource that I'll provide you. I'll send out an email regarding this this week. There's a ministry called Peacemakers. 
guy named Ken Sandy is sort of uh, leading the ministry. And he's put together seven steps of forgiveness that I think are really good. They come from God's Word. And here's what they are. This might be if you're the, wrong, you're the person who's wronged someone. And this might be if you have been wronged, what you should seek patiently. First, address everyone involved, all those whom you've affected. Secondly, avoid if, but, and maybe. Do not try to excuse your wrongs. Third, admit specifically both attitudes and actions. Fourth, acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting someone. Fifth, accept the consequences, such as making restitution. Sixth, alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. Seventh, ask for forgiveness. Those things may take some time. They may take some time. So I don't, definitely don't want to encourage you to not take the Lord's Supper until you get all seven of those things from somebody. Or to not take the Lord's Supper until you've given all seven of those things to somebody that you've wronged. But head off in that direction because of the gospel. In light of the gospel. And take this for nourishment in the journey pursuing reconciliation. Got to get used to this a little bit, huh? (laughs) Looking around, first time up here. Uh, In preparation for this supper, um, there were just some parallels that came to mind with this holiday we just kind of went through. And it's, it's really appropriate what... Being it's just shared, and um, in thinking about that, I don't know what your family tradition is, but you know, typically we gather as a large family um, from distances sometimes, and um, we share a common meal. And that came to mind. I was thinking about it as we prepare for the supper that we enjoy as a family gathering for a common meal. Um, my thought towards my my family is that this meal sometimes is the only time I see those people in a year, that yearly gathering. Some, it may span a few years if they're a distance away. And um, the conversations are about things long ago, if at all, and they're difficult. And there was, as I was thinking about that, I was, I was enjoying that this is something we do weekly, the benefit of that. And um, the other thing that came to mind is as we set to eat our Thanksgiving meal a lot of times, I wonder if there's any thought to what we're even commemorating. Is there any thought to what we're even, what brought this about? We're sitting to enjoy a Thanksgiving meal, but what is that about? I'm, I'm thinking about our conversations too over the last few days, how many of them were even about being thankful. So again, I enjoy that we come to this meal weekly. And we're reminded of our Savior. And it's a common meal we all share together. So I'm thankful that it's often, for some of us, not just this particular meal, but this meal in the words. For some of us, that's three times a week, a Sunday and a Wednesday in our small group. The Word encourages us to exhort one another daily, so that's something we can do daily. We can be reminded. Also, uh, that we have this place. You know, we call this the Lord's Supper. We see this as a place at the Lord's table. We call this communion. We have community in it and family. So I'm just, I'm thankful this morning uh, that we have this opportunity to gather and do this and be reminded. Listen, in Colossians 1, 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above, report, above reproach before him. Did you hear that reconcile? This is Ben was talking about as we reconcile and move towards reconciliation. Every week we're reminded that we are at peace with God. We are reconciled. In Luke 22 it says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body given for us. Sometimes this supper can seem really formal. But I want you to sense the reality. This is real. It's symbolic. This is real. His body given for us. At peace with God. At peace with God. And reconciled. Let's eat. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten. Saying this cup that is poured out for you. Is the new covenant. In my blood. Blood of a new covenant, a new covenant, forgiveness of sins, God's righteousness in Christ instead of my own, clean and reconciled, finished work, a finished work, in Christ God is satisfied, let's drink. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we are a thankful and grateful people, that our hearts are fully satisfied in the finished work of Christ. Father, I pray as we worship in giving, uh, Father, that would be done in grace and in love and in worship. Father, we give this time to you. Thanking you for Christ and praying in his name. Amen. Like a lot of the uh, conversation that we've had in the last few weeks that I've had on a personal level, email or personally, has been dealing with sort of forgiveness. It's sort of something that God kind of put on our plate that I didn't really anticipate. It's not really clearly a teaching of Hebrews there, but it's one that we're sort of connected uh, to something that we need to be walking in. I want to encourage you in something. Um, I don't know that you can work through stuff by yourself, and I encourage you to seek out uh, a small group, or small group shepherd, or others in your small group, or some deacons, or elders, or whoever, to walk with you. And you, if you're trying to work through something, that if there's something nagging at you when you take this supper each week, then that's probably something that you need to be working through. And uh, hopefully you've realized that these horizontal relationships impact the vertical. They do. I mean, you can't say you love Jesus and yet you got no use for your brother. Uh, it just doesn't work. So this is the, the fabric or the soil of loving God. It's both. So I encourage you, if there's some horizontal issue that you're working through and you need some help with that, to be okay with asking for it.
I don't think he lets you get away with working through things by yourself because he's made us to where we need each other. And these giftings that we're talking about, somebody may have a gift of discernment or a gift of wisdom or insight that can help you come alongside you in whatever you're trying to work through. Or you may be that to somebody else. So I encourage you to connect with each other if you need help with something like that. If you just don't know where to go, don't turn nowhere. (laughs) Double negative uh, for emphasis. Turn to, you can email me or contact uh, Lori in the office and we can connect you with somebody who can walk with you through this. And an obvious um, direction would be your small group shepherd or that family, um, husband or wife. So I encourage you to do that. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you attested to this story in those who heard that the Lord bore witness, the Lord declared it, and that you've borne witness through such a dramatic uh, series of events. Lord, I pray that we can enjoy those without having to be fueled by those now. I pray that we can just walk faithfully in this message, in this story as ear witnesses. I pray for those who are leading families or who are preparing to lead families. Um, I want to pray that they are being equipped even now for how to attest and how to declare and how to bear witness. Um, I pray too that corporately that we can continue to bear witness to your story um, by just the exercise of the gifts as you have distributed them among your people. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, We turn the rest of this day and this week over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.